you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animated chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary. And add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. Listen up, fanboy. It's the Fanboy Planet Podcast. Hi, I'm Fanboy Planet Moral Compass and podcast producer Rick Brett Snyder. If you're a regular listener, you'll recall that the Fanboy Planet crew were guests at this year's Convolution Convention in South San Francisco, where we recorded episode 369 in front of a live audience of Klingons and other alien beings. Earlier that morning, I had the pleasure of interviewing Convolution guest of honor Kevin Grazer, and recorded it for your listening pleasure. Kevin is a really interesting guy who actually gets paid for telling TV writers where they got their science wrong and what they should do to get it right. Now that's an enviable job. There's a lot more to Kevin, though, but I won't spoil it for you now. Let's go right to the interview. Let's just start off by saying thanks for, uh, for being here at Convolution. I hope you're enjoying your time. Uh, I haven't been here very long yet, but yeah, so far it's been, it's been fun. Okay. Yeah. And you're going to get some food later today. I actually. need to get some food or I'm going to pass out. Excellent. You know, it's That's, the rigors they're putting me through here. So your energy seems fairly high for someone uh, dealing from a food... food and, well, you're not caffeine deficient. I'm not caffeine. No, no, I've got plenty of caffeine, so you might be slowing me down here periodically. Oh, yeah, I'm known for that. But, Slowing people down? Or, exactly. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. My bod rate's going to be pretty high. Terrific. Let's start at the beginning. I was born in Cleveland. You were? Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. My father was. Not, not that early on, I assume. Okay. No? Okay. The beginning. And, uh, no, no, that's fine. I, I'm actually interested in your job or position or often role is a science advisor to various media projects. Indeed. Television, movies, most predominantly, but you books. I've got a couple books that I'm juggling right now, yes. When we'll get to those. But right. when you were a kid, what's your first memory of a real science-y thing that you did? Oh, when I was a kid, the Apollo missions were covered much more extensively than anything space-related is today. When the early Apollos were launching, that would be an all-day event on television. You'd have people come on, experts telling you what you're about to see, and then you'd see the launch, and then you'd see this is what's going to happen, and this, they'd talk about the different phases of the mission, and, and nothing was, was left to the imagination, uh, unless there was, of course, some kind of anomaly. You, you knew everything that they were going to do. You were there watching as much as they could show you, with, you know, as it happened. And this is something that was covered by all the major networks. I mean, this is the three network days, right? Right, right. So, so it was something you couldn't really miss. And we've kind of gotten collectively into, ah, I've been there, done that now. So we don't cover the space-related stuff as much as perhaps we used to. Um, and, and, of course, that, that, that changes a little bit when you have a landing, like, say, Curiosity. When it landed on Mars, you had a you know, big media event. Or, right. Or... When I, it's still not covered by all the networks. No, the no, 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 no. But I mean, when I very well covered on the internet. But. They, well, they are. But you know, when I, when 
my spacecraft, I worked on Cassini for 15 years. When it went into orbit around Saturn, um, I co-anchored with Miles O'Brien on CNN all day, and we did three spots an hour every hour on, on from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. on CNN Headline News and CNN International. So yeah. CNN was covering that extensively, and and we had the, where we were broadcasting. There were shot lines for CNN, for Fox, for all the the major news networks. So so every one was covering that pretty extensively, and I think we've even backed off from that a little bit. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It's a, but Apollo was the was but a, the culmination of the three prongs of of space exploration. It was and and you know like I said back then I remember from the early Apollo days I did I do remember the landing on the moon. How old were you when they landed? I'm not saying I'm, I'm older than I look. I think I'm, I think we're pretty much the same age. <laughs> Probably. So so I do remember the um, the the moon landing. I don't remember it well, but uh-huh. I do remember it and I did watch it live. It was late. <laughs> did you have? Did you build the models? I built models. Yeah, yeah. I had a Saturn V. I that's I didn't have any rocket models because I four four foot tall. One? No, I had wow. a smaller one. I had, a, but I was I was more into building airplane models because once you build one rocket, they're kind of all same. Yeah. I thought so that was kind of my way of looking at it. So I liked I liked the airplane models better. But um, and, and you know I had an Enterprise model and a Romulan Warbird and a and a Klingon hanging in my room. So you know. So did that event then set you on the path towards JPL? Then? Well, that and and. You know the original JPL being the Jet Propulsion Library li- laboratory. laboratory Library. That'd we have be, one of those at the JPL. Uh, um, that and and I remember the original Star Trek. I mean, if nothing else, it was you know it was syndicated for years mm-hmm. after the original run. And you know who didn't who back then didn't want to grow up to be Kirk or Spock? Oh yeah, or or some genetic gene splice combination thereof. Yeah, and um, which which in the, in the newer Star Trek. Spock is sort of a more of an action hero slash scientist than he is than he was in the original because out of necessity yes. because of, of where that direction and that time stream has gone. But between the two, yeah, I mean, I was I was fated to be go that direction. You know, from early on, I was like, oh, this is, I, I'm there. You know, in second grade, there's always that kid who knows every dinosaur ever. Yes. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was, so terrific. So I was nerdy science guy from word go. So, and then your formal education. Did you start on in, in, in on your career and just go all the way through? Do you have any major changes or oh, any specific? I, uh, I went years where I was either well after my undergrad. Um, I got my undergrad in. Please computer. tell me you went to the theater arts and then went to design. No, no, no. I, I, my undergrad was in computer science from Purdue. Okay, and um, but after that, for the next several years. I was either in school full time, working part time, or vice versa. Uh, and yeah. So I was—I I, I have a lot of schooling, but I was—I was working too. So I mean, I went—I I graduated from Purdue, and I was working in um, actually I wrote video games for a short while, and then I really, was, yeah. What company? A place is called Kbyte, and it's—I it's, don't I, think it exists anymore. But they—if um, if there was an Atari video game that was not for an Atari home computer, we wrote it. Okay. So for like the Commodores or the Vic Twenties or, okay. or Apples, we we did wrote the conversions. We did the conversions, right? Cool. And um, then I worked. Uh, that was that was a short while. And then I worked uh, writing engine control software in the auto industry for for several years. This is really interesting because I I was working in software at Visicorp at that time on the Visicalc and all that stuff. So the, the the computer the computer aspect of it, and then worked at Ashton Tate where we hired a bunch of people from JPL because huh. they were very close to each other. So. I, I, I heard a lot of lot of stories, and everybody from JPL had such great artwork, uh, photographs and stuff. Space they have always that, that that is actually one of the things that got me to want to work at JPL. 
was I was walking across Purdue as a freshman, walking across campus. I looked in the in the chemistry building, and there was a there was something. This was Friday night. There was something going on in the chemistry building. Okay, so I walked in, and it was a JPLer who was doing a presentation, and they have always had the most awesome and imaginative artwork. And I remember him showing a quick video at the end about Voyager and what was what was to be with the mission because um, at that point it was. Um, Gosh, I think one of the Voyagers has gotten to Jupiter at that point in time. But, um, you know, Saturn was on the horizon for both of them. And actually, yeah, um, this was 79, so this was with the launch. So, yeah, this was, Saturn was on the horizon for both. And then Voyager 2 would go on to Uranus and Neptune. But just watching this, this cool graphics and the topics this thing I was talking about, and it wasn't science fiction, yeah. I was sold. At that point, I want to work at JPL. So that's kind of why I set my sights on JPL. And then you know, when I graduated, I was, when I was working full-time, I, was, I got a second degree at a place called Oakland University. It's a um, uh, medium-sized school just north of Detroit in okay. Oakland County. Not in, it's not in California. It's not Oakland, California. It's Oakland County, Michigan. And then I went back to Purdue for a master's and then on to UCLA for a Ph.D. So you end up in, at JPL, and JPL is kind of a it's, a, it's a wonderful place that you're in Southern California to get access to Hollywood. Is that how you bridged? Or? You know, it, 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 that that's, sounds logical, but it really wasn't. Um, I actually, you know, if, if you view being a science advisor as being equally right and left brain, I got into the right brain uh method of, of your white brain part and I know people who are psychologists are going pulling your heart going oh no that's not right you know it's the right brain left brain thing isn't isn't real but but um colloquially will um hey you kids off my lawn no sorry <laughs> so no what happened was when I was in graduate school I Star Trek Voyager started ah. and I I was really looking forward to Voyager, and I thought the first couple seasons, uh, you know, the time I thought it had potential, it wasn't living up to, and I was disappointed in the in this show. And I think the last four seasons were amazing, but the first three had problems. I, th- I thought finding its direction at the time. It was such a great premise that you have half the crew is Starfleet, the other half crew are rebels, Maquis, yes, and that that lasted about. Three episodes before they all started acting like Federation officers with the occasional breakout. That's one of the things that we, I say we, um, I had a co-author, my friend of mine who was um, a fellow physicist, um, uh, Air Force officer. Um, We shared similar feelings on on Voyager and and thought it was, it had a potential to be fantastic and, and wasn't yet. And so... Back then, Paramount would accept unsolicited manuscripts yeah. for um, for their Star Trek series. Uh, you send in a script, and and they were really honest. They said we get about three thousand a year, and a good outcome happens to single digits. So we're looking at roughly one in a thousand kind mm-hmm. of outcomes. But if you send us your script, we'll make you two promises: it'll get read, with, and within eight weeks to eight months, you'll get it back. And that's all we'll promise you. So my friend and I wrote this script, and, and, and you know we were both busy. I was in graduate school, for crying out loud, and he has a family. He worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and so we were both busy. But we, we banged out this script, and it was, um, it was called Survival of the Fittest. It was about Voyager runs across a colony of Klingons in the, in the Delta Quadrant, and it's, a, it's, it's old-school Klingons who don't have the technology to be here yet, let alone be here and established. So how did they, they get, get here, there? and what does that mean for our ability to get home? 
So that was the that was the basic premise. And since they're old style Klingons, they don't like us much. Yeah. So that was the premise: is they have information we need, but they're they're our adversaries. So that was the the premise of the story, and um, we sent it in. And we waited, and we were busy, so we, we kind of forgot about it. But seven months to the day after I sent it in, I got a call from the executive producer's assistant saying, loves your story, goes in a direction we don't really want to go, which they eventually did, but, um, but they invited us to come and pitch stories. Excellent. So you develop you know, a, few, a few stories and go in and sit with a staff writer and say, hey, here's an idea. What if the Deans want Neelix's other lung? Or, or something like that. And then, you, you, and then they say... Typically, what's really weird is what they typically say is, is either we just shot that, we just bought that, we just said no to that. But it's amazing, absolutely amazing, how many times people come up with the exact same story. Yeah. And um, so a lot of times we pitch something that they'd already shot. And, and in fact, one time I pitched something that was obviated by the episode showing that night. So, wow. we, so we were close. On, we, we kept pitching. We, kept, we never officially sold anything, but we kept hitting close. And, but, but while pitching to Voyager, I met um, two staff writers in their first jobs in the entertainment industry. One was Michael Taylor, who I worked with on Battlestar and uh, Virtuality and, and Defiance and Bretton Chrome. And, and, and so I've known Michael for a long time now. And the other person I met was Brian Fuller. And Brian Fuller, who's known for, well, he's currently the showrunner in Hannibal. He created Pushing Daisies and Dead Like Me. He's, he's just gotten huge in the entertainment industry. And, and, and um, Brian ended up pitching me as the science advisor to Ron Moore on Battlestar. Excellent. So that's, it was you know, a case of not what you know, who you know. But I got in because of the script I wrote, not because of, I, I could handle the science stuff being a JPLer, but I got in because I, I wrote that story with my friend Jess. At what point did you get in on Battlestar? Were they, were they I was, still coming up with like the Bible, or was it the Bible was existed in its in its final format when I came in? They had done, shot the pilot, okay, and I came in as of 33, 33 okay. on. What was funny is if you've ever seen the CSI episode where there's a murder at a science fiction convention, the Space Oddity the episode's called. I haven't seen that much. There's a, a it, it's about um, a convention in Las Vegas. It's, it's, a, it's centered around a show, it's essentially Star Trek, but they can't call it, so they call right. it um, Astro Quest. And, you know, are you a quester? And that's, Ooh. yeah. And, well, and, and the, the people who wrote that episode, the, the, the Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, are both Battlestar alums. They're also Deep Space Nine alums. Okay. And there is a scene in this where you see a YouTube video of the person who was killed at the convention. And he's, he's showing film for his new project, AstroQuest Redux. And what he says is, you know, in the original AstroQuest, I grew up with this. And I wanted to be, I don't remember the character's name, but it was essentially it's Captain Kirk. But, but these characters are all too perfect. Do we see any Captain Kirks around here? So I, so I looked at the people around me in, in bars and, and, and the, I, I don't see any Captain Kirks. I see real people with real problems and real. So that's what I wanted to incorporate into AstroQuest. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you AstroQuest Redux. And he shows this video that it basically did the Battlestar treatment on Star Trek, if you can imagine right. that. Right. And, and then you cut back to, this, to the crowd and there's this stunned silence. Just everybody's mouth's agape. And then one gentleman stands up out of the audience and said, you suck. And that person is Ron Moore. <laughs> and what that whole, that whole scene was meant to recreate was when Ron Moore came to a convention called Galacticon. It was in Burbank, um, 2003, I think. 
he was that guy on stage. Uh-huh. He was sat in front of a hostile crowd of, of old school Battlestar fans who didn't like the, him messing with their show. And he had the you know he had the courage to stand up there and say this is what we're going to do. And he showed clips. And while most people you know were boo and, and they, they wanted to throw things at him, I looked at it and I can tell you the exact moment when I said I want to work on this show. And so, um, but that that scene in Space Oddity was meant to recreate Ron Moore's experience in Galacticon. I've when got to go first back and find that episode. It's, it's to a, watch. you know it's a really good episode. It it both. It both pokes fun at and celebrates nerd culture in equal amounts. And the fact that you celebrate that nerd culture that much is, is kind of cool. But the, the writers, like, it, it, it's, it's, it was directed by Michael Mankin, um, who was a Battlestar alum. Um, co-starred Kate Vernon. Okay. Ellen Ty. So it was really a bunch of Battlestar people pitch in on an episode of CSI. Nice. So, and, and also a lot of former Trek people, too. So, so it, was, it was just full of nerdy goodness. And and but but that scene you know was recreated Ron's experience with with um, Galactica on on um, it's so meta it's, just, it's it's very meta. So when you come on to a project, let's talk about Battlestar. When you, when you would come on on to an episode, were you right there at the beginning at the storyboarding? You, you were reviewing the scripts. What, yeah. What, what does a science advisor do, and how does he get it right? Let me let me bridge the, that topic in the, in the last one. Okay. When I interviewed with Ron, it was like a five minute interview. Okay. Um, I think if Brian, I come with Brian's recommendation, and he, and he worked at JPL, I think he figured I could do the job. Um, I walked into his office, and one of the first things he said is, "You look familiar." I said, yeah, Galacticon, I asked you the only do polite questions you got all night. Nice. <laughs> and, and <clears throat> again, they were, they were, they'd already shot the pilot, and so um, he hands me the Bible, and he hands me 33 in water, the first you know, three scripts. Great episode. 33? Yeah, both of them, 33 and water. You know, if I, the original script at, with, uh, with, for 33 was even more daring than 33 was. So tense. It, well, the, again, the original was even more daring. Um, but I just at that point in time, I don't think sci-fi was willing to go that far out on a limb. It was. Uh-huh. It was. Um, we do establish that there are people aboard Olympic carrier, and they don't have nukes on board, and they still shoot it down. That was cool, and and that was a little. You know, we just killed thirteen hundred sixty-five civilians for you know no confirmed reason, and I think I you can see why sci-fi might be a little hesitant. Yeah. To, I, I, and, and again. With Battlestar having done all the things they'd done, that has reset the bar of what people are willing to do early. And but back then, it was a different, little different landscape. Sure. So I, you know, I completely get it. Okay, so I get this, and and people who have worked in the industry, I've heard stories time and again that you know that on occasion, if you give advice, anything outside of a very narrow range of of sciencey stuff. I've heard people being told, you just stick with the science, we'll do the creative stuff, thank you very much. Mm. And I, I, I took these and I, said, I told Ron, I said, you know, it's going to take me a while to learn my place, finger quotes and all that. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Anything you want to give us, we'll take. You know, with the implied that we may or may not use it, but we'll take it. I mean, I, I, I submitted um, over the years. I, I didn't often stray from science input, but occasionally when I did, and they've, they've used them. And, um, and I mean... Okay, let, let me back up. A lot of what I suggested was also military in nature, uh-huh. um, but I, I, rec- I suggested a few jokes. Not there were very many, and they took them. So, so it was all about creating the best show possible, 
not this is me, 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 me. This is, it's like we'll take what we can get from wherever we can get it was kind of the attitude and that was a really nice environment to work in as you might imagine. And then um, fast forward, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Years later on Defiance, Kevin Murphy, our showrunner, who was the showrunner on Caprica, uh, the second half of Caprica, mm-hmm. um, was a huge Battlestar fan. And, and he said that, you know, Battlestar people are used to shooting for you know excellence. I want those people on my team. So you'll see a lot of the same names on Defiance as was on Battlestar. Right. And, but, but as far as that, so he hands me 33 in water and every script... On Battlestar, I saw and got a chance to provide notes on. Again, they don't always take them, but sometimes that's the story just won't allow for it, or for you know, many different reasons. But um, before season three, I was told, "Hey, we're going to start getting serious about getting to Earth. What we'd like to do is come in and um, talk about astronomical signs, portents, things that might lead us um, to Earth." Because, as you'll recall, the you know, president was, was following the prophecies of Pythia. Mm-hmm. And then in season three, we learn that um, Pythia was actually on the original trip to Earth. I don't know if you remember that. In, in, so, what, actually, one, one of the cool implications from that is that in season one, Six tells Baltar, we know your religious texts better than you do in many cases. And if Pythia was on the original trip to Earth, that means that their religious texts were written by a Cylon, which I think was a cool thing. But um, it explains why Six said, we know your religious texts better than you do, uh-huh. um, because it was written by a Cylon. <laughs> and, and it also explains why Ty later said our mumbo-jumbo was merging with their mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, well, that was—I mean—that was kind of the theme of the last season of the merging of the two. It was, and and that's why, and and I think that was that was that was a detail that if you got it, you got it. We didn't explicitly say, "Hey, by the way, those those texts written by Cylon." Yeah, we we didn't we just if you caught it, you, you know. But so I went in and I did this presentation of things Pythia might have seen, like the twin pulsars, or like the cl- the cluster, or or you know that we could use in a, in a dramatic way for season. Um, three and four, mostly for season three. It just sounds like you have like an all-access pass to the show, and you get to do the fanboy thing before the show actually films. You have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I do. And, and and on Eureka, and and I got hired on Eureka um, again between the pilot and the the first episode. But they shared an office building at the Rock Hudson building at Universal. And one day there was there was a get to know you lunch between the writers and both both staffs and the two writers assistants were sitting there. Hey, how do you deal with all your technical issues? Oh, we have this guy at JPL. And an hour later, I had a call. Wow. And I got hired on to Eureka. And that was a blast too. In fact, Eureka in some respects um, is kind of my touchstone for being a science advisor because everything I've done for any show ever, I did at least once on Eureka. So Eureka was probably the most, and for, for good reason. In Battlestar, the science in Battlestar is simply part of the background. It's, we're describing these people's lives. It's a sci-fi chase, you know, um, political, um, metaphysical, you know, exploration. Science is not, or is it rarely front and center in, in Galactica? It, occasionally it is. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a dichotomy because, the, because of the not wanting to have computers on board, you've got all this low-tech tech on the show. Well, they have computers, they're just not networked. Right, the, the, the networked aspect of it. But the, the, so, but the science of it is, uh, especially the, uh, 
the, the ships and the trajectory and spinning, turning around in space and not doing the, the Vipers banking uh, from the original series. I can't take credit for that. Yeah. The Vipers, the way the Vipers moved um, somewhat realistically, or actually really quite realistically, that was, that was in the pilot. That was before me. Okay. That was, that was nothing to do with my influence. They, they, you know, Ron wanted to do a real, honest to goodness, science fiction show. Yeah. And there were times when you kind of, you know, put your fingers in your ear and go blah blah with when there's a you know, science issue. Um, but most of the time, they got it as right as they possibly could. And in fact, one of the times where the science was was probably the most um, what's the word um, overlooked was a scene that no one complains about. Hmm. Because it's so cool, and that's when Galactica jumps into the atmosphere of New Caprica. Oh yeah, really? something like a rock. I mean, firstly, that thing's too big; it would have broken up. It would have tumbled. It just no amount of thrusters would have kept that stable. Um, and then when when we see Hot Dog launching through the plasma envelope, he would have shattered the second he hit that. So what? It was too cool. It was just such an awesome scene. It was so so. Even though science was bad, it's so exciting. You don't question. It. You just for, you just kind of like I'm with you. I'm going for the ride. Yeah. And in fact, my notes on that scene when I first got the the um, the episode was, you know, I'd be remiss in my job as a science advisor if I didn't point out that um, this wouldn't work for, for this and this and this reason. Then I said, but owing to the high coolness factor, go for it because I want to see that. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about you know, let's talk about a Eureka for a little bit because I I, I loved Eureka. I loved Eureka too. Colin, Colin Ferguson uh, is just the right protagonist for that environment. The guy who wanders into the town of geniuses and becomes part of it. And then he's often the one who can save things because he's not the genius. He's much more practical. The, the, the science in that is front and center every episode. It is. And it's also much more speculative than Battlestar was. Yeah. Um, Eureka is a town that's 30 to 50 years ahead of us technologically. The technology we enjoy, like our smartphones, was leaked out of Eureka slowly over time through various mechanisms. And... And so, yes, it was, it was a character. Science was a character in that show as much as was Allison Blake or, or um, Douglas Fargo or, or Sheriff Carter. So in that show, again, like in Battlestar, I um, you know, got the chance to provide notes on every episode. But at the same time, I was also consulted much more often in the, the outline phase of that the script. That was where I was going with the question. And every season before the season started, I'd go in and do a PowerPoint of here's some technology we could use and, and or not. And sometimes, even if it didn't use what I suggested explicitly, it led to a discussion in the writer's room about what we can do. And, and you try to link your science thematically with what's going on in the characters' lives as well. And exactly. So, and that's what, ha- that's what we carried across to, to a viewer was that the science wasn't a MacGuffin. It wasn't the techno babble of a Star Trek to get us out of a situation we've kind of put ourselves into. It really was fundamental to whatever the situation was between the individuals. You know, and, and, and as many times as we you know, shot for the stars and kind of missed the mark in the science where, okay, that's not quite right. There are some times when, when a writer would write something thinking it was super high tech, and I said, oh, no, we can go way past that. We've already, we were already way past this. And and so, you know, again, when it's speculative, you can, you know, all, all kind of things can happen. You know, so some of the things that that we suggested have actually happened since then. Like what? What's your um, We're three D. We we three D printed Felicia Day. Oh, yeah. a, a copy of Felicia Day, and we we can three D print meat now. Right. Um, right, right. 
So there's all kinds of things that I mean. So so for 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 vegans um, or vegetarians who who get that, wow, I really need protein craving. Um, might be possible in their future to actually have meat that without you know without, without that was never a, part of a, an animal. It was never part of something that was alive. Yes. Yeah. So there's a possibility we'll be three D printing meat in the not too distant future. Bright future. But we three D printed Felicia Day. Go ahead. When Eureka crossed over with Warehouse 13, I worked on every Eureka episode. I did not work on the Warehouse 13 uh, version of that. So when 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 um, Claudia came to Eureka, yes. When Fargo went to the warehouse, no. Was that fun though, pulling more of the fiction and just the science? Yeah. It was just another episode for me. And the question was was it, was it fun you know, incorporating something other than just the science? And no, it was that was it was just another episode. Um, I hadn't seen that much of Warehouse 13 at that point in time, so I, I, you know, I thought it was cool that we were doing the crossover because that used to happen a lot more in, in, in TV. It used to have a lot more crossover stories, and I kind of missed that. So I thought it was cool that we actually went back, went there. So I thought it was really cool we did that. But. Claudia was just a great character to inject into the Eureka uh, environment. You know, what's, what's funny is um, I'm just finishing up a book with um, I have a co-author, Stephen Cass, as a... Uh, He's a writer for IEEE Spectrum, and the book is called Holly Weird Science. It's about how science and scientists are portrayed in the entertainment industry. And what was really cool is I interviewed Kevin Murphy, again, our showrunner on Defiance, about running a science fiction show and his views in science fiction. The topic was conceits. How many gimmies do you get? Mm. Or how far can you go before people say, oh, that's just silly and stop watching? Right. And again, he talked about Battlestar and how, how much he liked that. And, and he talks about, about how you, you, you put your gimmies up front and, and, and then you, you, know, you go with it. Or when there's some of the metaphysical things like in Battlestar, how those were actually leaked solely over time. But the science gimmies are all up front. And he, he, in this interview, he, he, he talks about that. And then... Shortly afterwards, I found this, this writing. It was by H.G. Wells. It was a preface to a book of, of his stories that he'd written over his life. It was, a, it was an anthology of H.G. Wells' stories. And although the vernacular varied by 80 years, the sentiment was exactly the same. So we have a sidebar in the book where we have Kevin Murphy's words. A, here's a current modern showrunner in his creative prime against H.G. Wells, you know, a, a novelist reflecting over a career's worth of work. And it's the same sentiment. Wow. It's really cool, and then and what I I lucked into a, a situation where after the Defiance panel at San Diego Comic Con, where Kevin Murphy was on the panel and Jamie Murray was on the panel, I had a chance to run up and take their picture. Now Jamie Murray, she's Stamatar in Defiance, mm-hmm. but she was H.G. Wells in Warehouse Thirteen. Right, right. So I have a picture of Kevin Murphy and H.G. Wells. That is in the book. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Let's let's talk about Defiance. That's Happily, I love that show. Just such a rich environment from the before the word go when it was announced, and it announces this groundbreaking multimedia event with a video game as well. And when were you brought on for that? I was brought on after the first pilot was written. Okay, um, the first pilot was somewhat different than the um, than what you saw because um, that was submitted to Sci-Fi and Sci-Fi wanted to see some changes, so Kevin Murphy and Michael Taylor, the aforementioned Michael Taylor, rewrote the, the, the pilot, and it was quite different than the original. I mean, it was still a town, it was still post-terraformed Earth, 
But it was different. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And um, so I was brought on after the first pilot was there. So I was there for the for um, from the word go really because the, the the pilot was rewritten while I was while I was you know the science advisor. And you know the world building in that show is absolutely amazing. It's yeah. amazing what we've thought of. Now, since we were co- collaborating with the game, you know, and the game, you know, given how complicated that is, they they were, you know, they were doing things kind of advance of the of the show. They were they were you know putting that into production, and we were collaborating with the, the game people, Try on Worlds, um, in in our keeping our world building the same. We had a huge database that people from both Tryon or Universe or sci- Sci-Fi could um, could access and they would ask me things like hmm, nothing flies into finance. Why don't things fly? So I wrote this big long white paper on why things don't fly and, and said there's a different reason for up low, down low or up high. So it's this long explanation and scientific details and in, in an episode it's radiation. It gets like one sentence, but if they but they have it in their back pocket. If they ever needed to explain in detail, they have this thing on this database. Says this is these are all the reasons why you don't see anything fly in, in defiance. Right. And then where is the arc belt? Is it near Earth orbit? Is it medium Earth orbit? Is it, you know they we know where that is. So I give them five options, and we, so we know where the arc belt is. Well, the arc belt got destroyed in the final episode, so we don't have an arc belt anymore. It got pulverized. Right. But the. Um, the, all those things are final great. episode, but it's coming back, right? Defiance? Defiance? Oh, Defiance is coming back. Yeah, we yeah. just announced officially this week that Defiance is renewed for a third good, season. Good. Um, Kevin has said publicly that um, season three we're going to be more global, and season four we're actually going to go. He said we're going to go back off off world. Oh, cool. Um, and and that that reminds me the the Votan system, um, the system from where the Votanos Collective originally hails. We know the shape of that system. It's a binary star system. We know what planets orbit what stars. We know what races come from what planets. Um, some of their culture is based on the fact that, um, you know, since we have songs about the silvery moon or anything like that, some of their cultural references are based on the, the Watanit system. So it's, it's the, the, the amazing richness of that backstory is, is truly complicated and it's, it's really deep. It's, it's amazing how far we can go into that and, and that we've already you know, laid out. Yeah, from, a, from a writer's standpoint, choose any, any one or two characters from any two groups, any of the multiple groups of aliens, and you've got instant story to... Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would like to look, see more of the backstory of the Watana system, and I... I I think I, I don't want to speak for for my showrunner, but um, I think Kevin has, has alluded that we, we might see more of that in, in the not too distant future. I would I would um, I think that would be really cool. So when when uh, uh, by, by the way, it's a, it, here's here's an example. There's a um, it, it's a binary star system. There's, the two stars are Sulos and Vaisu. Okay. And um, there is a song in the first episode of the season, "Across the Storm Divide." You remember Nolan and Arissa are sitting there singing right. this song. And if you hear the whole song, it's on YouTube. It's actually it's actually kind of filthy <laughs> song, um, but if you hear the whole song, there's reference to Sulos in there. You know, the line, "I burn as hot as Sulos." So it's all been. It's it's it, that, that song is written out. as if it's a contemporary song in this post-apocalyptic world. There's all sorts of references to Casty girls in their baths and Marathian right. um, girls in their zoo's path, and I mean, there's all sorts of and and, and, and a really filthy country song. Cool. 
So right. it's but it's 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 really well done. And and that when you have a world that that's that the world the world building was so well developed, you get stuff like this. So a lot of the the science in defiance is really kind of out there. It, you know, it's alien science, and there's a lot of uh, strange biological stuff that comes out. When you're when you're advising against that kind of stuff, are you finding a basis in known science for most of it, or are you just saying this? If if this is a parallel to our own own system, it would or wouldn't work. Kind of how do you, how do you advise uh, defiance? How does the advice differ from what you would do for Battlestar? No, I don't, actually, I don't see it as all that different because I don't see defiance as that much out there compared to Battlestar. Okay, um, a lot of things that we do. Um, can be sold just as plausibly as things be sold on, on Battlestar Galactica. Um, for example, the ego, the the implant device that that went to the base of the, the neck to record memories and record things, and 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 how that stemmed from nanoparticles. Uh-huh. I, I actually went from nanoparticle, bang bang bang, automatic to, to full blown developed ego with um, with it wasn't that hard of a cell. Um, so. Again, as far as the science goes, it, it just, um, you know, that wasn't that hard. The cell, um, I'm about going into details because if I provide details, then we're, I don't want to, you know, if somehow we ever revisit that if, if we want to give the writers the ability to kind of be flexible. But, but we did see the nanites, you know, that were released and, and how Pottinger and um, Yule may have got egos implanted. And again, that was, that was a fairly easy cell. The, from my standpoint, one of the biggest issues, but it's one thing that people generally accept, is the stasis net. Is force fields like that are, are kind of a trope, kind of accepted, right. and they don't exist. You know, force fields are just, force field is a term co-opted from physics that has come to mean an impenetrable barrier projected by technology, and that just doesn't exist. Right. That's one of my, my science tropey issues. But since it's so commonly ingrained Nobody in sci-fi can. and so commonly accepted, we see there's the stasis that, hey, it's back up, yay. Yeah. And we're protecting defiance against the Vulge. So and this one has kind of a hexagonal basis when it's... Well, that's, it's, that's, just, that's just what that says that's is the, it's endogene technology. That's the kick. Okay, yeah. Endogenes are fascinating. I think they're great. I love Doc Yule. Yeah. I oh, think, I think yeah. Trenna Keating is amazing. Gets yeah. the best lines, too. She does. Question. So the question, the question is about the game versus the show and what the audiences are wanting in each. You know, I, I don't know, I don't know how audience input factors into the game. I, I get it as a request from people. Hey, what about this? And by the time the what about this is posed to me, I have no idea of the original source of, of that. So, so the question is, I have no clue on how to answer that. Have you played the game? I haven't. I just like I, I've watched the show and I've followed some of the information and the tidbits coming up in the game, and it just seems like the game is a little bit different just than what the visual or the show audience is. And so I'm, I'm really curious about that. And you talked about some of the science, but it seems like it comes to you as an afterthought almost. Oh, well, like afterthought. I, I wouldn't say it's an afterthought. I would say we're trying to quite quite the opposite. We incorporate things way early. Okay. Um, oftentimes, a lot of the things I did, a lot of the white papers I wrote were before we even started shooting the, the show or during the development of season one. And um, in fact, to give you an idea how much they respect the science, there was one episode where we want to do something cool with the Gateway Arch. And what can we do? And the writers wrote something and I said, well, we can't do that. That doesn't work. They wrote something else. That doesn't work either. They wrote something else. Well, that would kill everybody in defiance. 
and and I, I had an idea of what what we could do. Let's just use let's just use this as big as antenna. Let's just use it and use it to to project to to send out a signal to an arc fragment that is still has propulsive capability to to bring it down onto into defiance. Well, that's how we, that's what we think is happening initially. It's actually trying to save defiance by by you know by deflecting it, but we don't know that first. So. I, I had a series of events of how you know Sukar does this, and then we see the the thing pop to life, and and I, we got to the point where I thought I knew how that could go and and be really cool, but that wasn't the direction we were going. We didn't really have a direction on that episode. We um, and we got to the point where Kevin Murphy said, "Hey, people, we had, we need to shoot something. We we had, we so we're going to go into a telecon at two o'clock, and we're leaving with a plot." And what I did is I, I, I sent out a treatment, a little, a little treatment for how I thought that could go, and sent it off and, and said, like, well, I hope they don't consider it to be like, overstepping my bounds. And then when we got on Telecon at 2 o'clock, Kevin Murphy says, well, we're here in the writer's room, and we have a solution that offends a few amount of people, and I, I think we're, we're going to go with what Kevin sent out a few hours ago. And that also that plays back to what I said about Ron on Battlestar, about accepting input from any number of sources, and if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. And... and um, so, and there's also a case of dedication to honoring the science, going to the last minute to make sure that part gets gets done correctly or done plausibly, and and you know you have um, two kind of moments, and this 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 holds for music and holds for science and it holds for all kinds of things that can pull you out of the dramatic narrative, but you have an oh wow moment when they do something really cool. You go oh that's cool, like Galactica jumping into the atmosphere, and you have the oh please moments. Yeah. Where you've just taken somebody who was immersed in your story, and they're now a person sitting among four walls, a ceiling, and a floor in the 21st century, going, "No, no, no, I don't buy that for a minute." No. So you want to avoid the "oh please" moments. So the arch is so iconic to Defiance, right? Yeah, that's that's the symbol for that series. But my problem with it has always been, who would build their house under that thing? Given it's still it's so broken up on the top, do you talk about the structure of the arch? Do you talk about why it doesn't fall or what? Well, that why? was that was addressed. Much less why you have a radio station up there. Well, that was addressed in season one. Why okay. the arch didn't fall? Okay. The reason they the reason that people converged on Defiance to look for Kaziri was because they assumed Kaziri was buried beneath, and during the um, during the terraforming event, it protected itself, and the arch was a benevolent side effect. Okay. So that's why they need to look for Kaziri because something as as I won't say fragile, but I guess yeah, that would be you know something as you know it's kind of out there uh, survived the terraforming incident. Something protected that, and that was how they knew to look for defiance for Kaziri. Okay. So that was that was alluded to very briefly in in season one, but it was it was mentioned that that was their 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 um, why that was the focal point. So Kaziri is the reason the arch is still standing. And as far as being a radio antenna, where do you put radio antennas on the mountains? Next oh, you're yeah. ringing Los Angeles, or the mountains ringing Phoenix. I mean, there are mountains ringing any any city that has mountains nearby. You have that's where your broadcast antenna because you get a greater range, and you get this big metal structure that you know that. But they don't have to have the station up there for it to be the antenna. It's it's an it's an interesting idea that it's up there, and they've had a couple of good things come well, dramatic things happen because of that. But it's almost like you want it to be like a, a watch point, a military observer. You know, I can see off into the distance from here, rather than 
rather than entertainment. My yeah, minor point. I don't know. I think it's a cool place for a, for a, a station. I think no, it's, it's definitely it's, cool. It's definitely cool. I, I like that uh, a lock broadcasts from there. Uh, just because I want to, I want to get to it. Falling skies. Um, I watched the I watched the first season and they switched the time on it the next season or something about it. My DVR recording broke broke on it. I've been meaning to get back into it. Um, tell me about your your involvement there. The um, first season um, aired and I actually didn't watch it the first season. Okay. Um, I heard it was good. I heard it was fun. And I then I um, in season two they brought in a lot of new writers. And a couple of them were Bradley Thompson, David Weddle, from who I knew from Battlestar, and Mark Verheiden from Battlestar was also already already been the show. And the new showrunner was Randy Obishan, who was the he wrote the pilot for Caprica, and so we had a very Battlestar influenced um, writing staff. And then Bradley and David, you know, lobbied to get me aboard, so I was on board for seasons two and seasons three. And then when that writing staff left, they they have a whole new staff, and I wasn't brought back on season four. Oh, okay. So I, I, in fact, I haven't seen it since I since I left. So I, I can't answer any questions about seasons four or the the last season five. It, it's it's always struck me as it's it's one of the it's the uh, TV version of one of those kind of militaristic sci-fi, sci-fi things where you're really just kind of putting the the alien presence into as a threat. But then they played around with that too. So, um, like I said, I can't say anything. I have not seen any of season four. But okay. what I can say is that when we were um, Working on season three, we spent a lot of work that summer uh, on backstory, and there was a lot of astronomy that that goes into the conflict between the Esfeni and the Volm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Again, like I haven't seen any of season four, so I don't know how it's been explored. I think that that direction's been somewhat abandoned. Okay. But um, we had an idea of the backstory, and it was it was very much based in astronomy. And you know, we had a, also that the idea that we were kind of like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan when they were fighting the Russians, mm-hmm. so that the Volm were giving us technology and, and giving us weaponry, and and that that Cochise was sort of a military advisor. So that was that had been much a reflection in, in the real world that you know that was kind of that scenario. And what was fun is that we were. Um, in the writers' room and talking about the astronomy of the of the situation and and how that works and the weaponry and how that works and um, I said okay if we're gonna do this if we're gonna do all of this we really need to have a science character and I don't mean a high school science teacher like season one I mean somebody who has a PhD after his name we need to have someone there to understand all this and potentially you know be there as a source of exposition for us and they said. Okay, we agree. And then David Weddle, um, like I said, who I'd worked with on Battlestar, says, yes, and we can find him living underground with all his pet rats. And the local children call him the Rat King. He was totally poking fun at me because I actually have pet rats. And okay. I'm always posting pictures of my rats to my Facebook page. And so they, um, you know, I say, ha-ha, funny. Turns out they pitched this to Mr. Spielberg, who says, hell yeah! <laughs> so if you Google... Falling Skies and Rat King, you will find two sets of entries. You'll find when Robert Tron Leonard was originally cast as Roger Kadar and how originally he was to be called the Rat King. And then right before the season started, again, more entries on, on Rat King. And it turns out that I was at a party and I, I saw Bradley Thompson 
And he said, yeah, that wouldn't get too excited about the whole Rat King thing because um, the people at TNT, they thought, yeah, this, this guy and his rats, that's a little too extreme, don't you think? And Bradley said, you realize he works for you, right? <laughs> so so at, at some level, Kadar is kind of sort of based on... An homage to you. Yeah. That's nice. So... When you're watching other... And, and he does work underground, though. That, that part stayed. <laughs> when you're watching other people's work, I mean, they're, they're especially yeah, I mean, in science fiction, science fiction or science-based uh, um, based media, movies and television, what's the one, the one thing that you see people doing over and over again that you just kind of go, ah, oh, face palm moment, kind of? The 10% myth has always bugged me, and that's the idea that we only use 10% of our brain. Imagine what we could do if we used 100. Well, we have a word for that. It's called a seizure. <laughs> and, um, so, so that's gotten propagated again and again and again throughout, throughout Hollywood. And, and they did it again, Lucy, this, this, this yeah. summer. And, you know, I was really I was conflicted about Lucy because um, I, the 10% myth bothers me. But, I mean, the trailer just made that movie look so cool. Did you see the movie? I didn't see it. It was actually I'll, a fun afternoon it looks It looks really good. Um, I, I, will, I will get it when it comes out. I, I was writing a book this summer, so I really didn't do much other than write this. You know, so I haven't seen Lucy yet. But I, but I will. And, I, I, and I, I'm almost embarrassed that I look forward to seeing it. Part of it's almost the, the Black Widow movie people want to see out of Scarlett Johansson. But then, then it goes... A little more off the rails. I again, I I, I can't say yet. I, I, I look forward to, to, to watching that um, as research for the book that I that I just finished with Stephen. Um, we just finished the, we're finishing up the second draft right now. Um, I have watched a lot of sci-fi movies, so that's just not one I've seen yet. But we, um, what was was kind of satisfying is there was a, a website. It might be TVTropes.com. I don't remember, but they were talking about different tropes, and, and one is the 10% myth, and they mentioned how that in Eureka, that Henry Deacon says that um, the human brain only uses 10%, the humans only use 10% of the brain at any given time, and the qualifier makes it more correct, uh-huh. and um, they they say the science advisors have gone on record as saying that, that you know, that kind of makes it a little more acceptable but they it, it was great to have your work appreciated nice. I, I I didn't even know that they had done that so, so you you do a lot of research focused research on 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 what you're working on do you do you do what kind of where do you go when you just want to say I want to catch up on what's new in the that I'm not seeing where, what, what do you what do you oh I mean as far as up? new sciencey stuff yeah well it just it's amazing what comes across your, your news feed if you're paying attention, like Yahoo News. I mean, you got all kinds of new things in science that comes to, just comes across strictly Yahoo News. I mean, so if it looks like an interesting link, I click on it and, and might lead you two or three links later. I, I get science news. I, I get science. Um, don't what? Yep, right, yes. And so I, 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 I get journals. I don't always have time to read them. But it's amazing if you just pay attention to what comes across your, your news feed, and even on Facebook, people will post. And um, if you just follow those, you get all kinds of cool stuff. So what new science are you most excited about? What, what new in, uh, inventions or uh, explorations or, in, or discoveries are you right now? Are you just like I'm kind of excited that in the past couple of weeks, two spacecraft have gone to orbit around Mars. Okay. That's kind of kind of neat. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited the fact that we're, we're getting close to having a to this country having a human spaceflight program again. That's that's um, 
that's advancing. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, there's other technology that it's, it's amazes me what we can do with fMRI with, with, with MRI magnetic resonance imaging on the human brain. Um, that's some of the research we did for the, the book working on right now and um, uh, all the things we've learned from that I mean I, I, I read a recent study that says that Asperger's and aut- may, may not be part of the autism spectrum they, they share some similar um, um, Manifestations, but they may not be even related. They just mm. may seem related. So I read that. That's an offshoot of MRI. Um, one thing I learned is really interesting is that the human brain, at some level, doesn't distinguish between real life and a fictional narrative. So when you, at some point in time, you're watching a TV movie, your part of your brain is taking that as as real. Oh yeah. And if you don't believe that. Just check your Facebook news feed when a character is killed on Game of Thrones or Walking Dead. Because people are grieving. Well, where that happens to me is I'll be in a bookstore, and I'll open a book, and I'll just start reading. And then I almost feel like I'm coming back to the surface out of whatever the plot was. And, hey, I'm in a bookstore. Because it's not the environment I was just... I I had something similar happen. I was um, was working on a book, um, editing a book. Um, There were were a couple other editors on the project, and one of whom was uh, Jimmy Paglia, who was my editor, or sorry, he was my showrunner on Eureka. And um, I, was, I was writing something, I don't even remember what it was, and I was really immersed in, in writing. And the phone rings, and it was Jamie calling about the book, and I just say, hello. First thing I was about was, oh, man, sorry. What? Writer's fog, I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> I just amazed me that one word, and he like I just said hello, and he he not only did he did he peg that he pegged it correctly, and because um, so so it takes you a while sometimes to surface when you're in that mode, and yeah. I find sometimes if I'm in deep enough, um, kind of back to the link of fMRI or MRI and, and brain studies, um, sometimes if I am deeply immersed writing, I can write things you know that is as good as I can write. And if something interrupts me and I have to speak, I can't, sometimes can't speak or can't think of words because I, I, I assume that means that, that speech comes from a different part of the brain than, than, than language that you, you might come up with and type into a, into a, um, into a book or to a, a chapter or something because sometimes I can't speak or can't speak well for, for several minutes. So some after. kind of bottleneck in the yeah, transference it's, it's pretty of wild. action and thought that you have to somehow move that to another space. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. So when, um, when when you see that kind of thing manifest and it's frustrating, but it's kind of cool at the same time. Like, wow, this is this is something, some aspect of the brain that I'm experiencing that I you know, have to acknowledge is kind of cool, but I'm frustrating because I can't think of the word cup. <laughs> exactly. Well, that gets worse as you get older. You know. Um, oh, great. When when you're. Uh, I, this is not meant to be an, insult, an insulting question because I'm going to use the word belief here. But what's what's something you believe, but there's absolutely no scientific evidence or proof or uh, process by which it can be uh, proven? I believe in relativity. Okay. And, you know... <clears throat> One of the, I'm going to kind of go off on a sidetrack here. One of the issues with science in TV and film, and and real science, is that there are words that are used by scientists in a way that they aren't necessarily used colloquially. And theory is one of them. 
and we say theory of relativity to a scientist, theory is something that is factual. It's a it's a you know law that has has not or cannot be proven. I don't know that we can prove relativity, but it, it seems to work every single time we do an experiment. But when you're talking to the the, the non-scientific public, somebody will say, ah, that's just a theory, mm-hmm. as if, using the more colloquial term, as if a theory is a scientific guess, when in fact that's the word hypothesis. So the, the difference between the words theory and hypothesis, the way they're used, um, leads people to believe that relativity may be just a scientific wild-ass guess, when in fact it's a law which we live by. So there's something that I firmly believe in. I firmly believe dictates the way the universe runs, and yet we can't really, haven't been able to prove it. We can, we can have infinite number of experiments. Anytime you get a GPS reading, and I mean true GPS, not faux GPS like on your cell phone, right. um, you are actually doing another experiment that validates both general and special relativity, assuming that your coordinates are correct. When, when you think about... That wasn't quite as metaphysical as you were hoping for, was well, it? Well, no, I, I, actually, <laughs> I, I, it's funny because when I wrote this, I, was, I said to my wife, I said, as Russell wrote this question, I said, I hope he, I hope he says uh, moon landing. <laughs> but no, I, but I, that's, that's me we have pictures, terribly facetious. I well, mean, you know, we have pictures from, from recent orbiters that show the landing sites. And unless they're faked too. In fact, I've actually been, been on that receiving end of that. There was a... I was doing a, an interview, a radio interview, this is several years ago now, right after um, Cassini had its first close flyby of the moon Iapetus. And Iapetus is a fairly distant moon, so we only, during the prime mission, we only had two close flybys. And actually, I don't remember, we had one, and maybe the first one was an extended mission. That's starting to fade as, as well. But when we first saw what we call the belly band, there's this ridge right at the exact um, equator of Iapetus, this big mountain ridge. And it's, you know, and and because it looks, it looks almost like a like a spine. It's it's pretty cool looking, but it's right at the equator, and it, it makes the the moon and the moon's kind of misshapen anyway. It's it's kind of uh, more oblong than than we think it should be. So the question is why. And and a, a research collaborator actually thinks she's she's figured that out. But since this this band was at the exact equator, people were saying you know they they were telling the interviewer that, you know, who had said that we're going to be interviewing Dr. Grazier, who's on the Cassini mission, they're saying, have him talk about the ridge in Iapetus and, and don't let him weasel out. Make him tell the truth. <laughs> As if that there could be a natural answer to that isn't the truth yeah. already. So, I, you know, they're already saying that whatever I say from a scientific standpoint that, and, and that we don't know is somehow already not the truth, when in fact we didn't know at the time. We had no, we'd just seen it for the first time, so people I'm not going to assume... Um, it's not the truth. It, it supports my concern. It has to be theory. aliens. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's like that guy from from Ancient Aliens. What's his name? Snuffleupagus or Snuffle? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, who? Um, it must be aliens, right? Yeah. So uh, the last question I want to ask you because we're, we're coming up on our, our time here, uh, and it may just bring us full circle on the question. But if when you think about any given time in in history. What do, what do you consider like the most important or uh, the biggest uh, scientific breakthrough that occurred? I mean, from from the standpoint of where we were at that time to where it took us. Wow, there's a lot of those, and um, I mean, in more recent history, I think the development of the um, the solid state transistor, uh-huh. because you know that enabled the whole computer revolution. And right now, um, 
like you, you have computer um, computer engineering and material science are kind of in a nice fee, a feedback loop. Whereas you know we we make breakthroughs in material science because of modern computational power, which enables better computers, which enable right. you know so Smaller, yeah. yeah. But the, all that started with the the, the modern um, solid state uh, transistor, transistor and and diode. Actually, actually more to the point, it started with the, the solid state diode, which led to the transistor, which which know. is really amazing when you think how short a time ago that was. Yeah, and, and again, that just, you know, it, everything's kind of just been accelerating as far as the rate of scientific advances, and, and all that is on the is on the shoulders of computation. Uh, that's, that's, that's recent, but there, I mean, there, there are several things that enabled that over the years, so, I mean... I mean, you reasonably could have said fire and uh, well, yeah. equally valid. <laughs> I've actually got, I've asked this question on different panels and I've gotten the answer fertilizer because it allowed... It allowed for excess, which allowed it for trade, which allowed it for economies. Yeah. 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 But I just went more recently and the first thing that, that popped to mind. No, was, I, I... Because I otherwise we're sort of, hmm, well, it could be this or it could be that or it could be Newton or it could be, you know, so... so but that was the first thing that came to mind that is, is certainly uh, enabling our modern... Technological advances is is the is computation, and that all stems from solid state Terrific. circuitry. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you this morning. I'm sure the audience I've enjoyed has being too. here. Uh, and, and we we didn't lose anybody. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's like you all stayed. Of Thank audience you. Stayed yes. through the whole thing. Appreciate that. Oh, the book. Yeah, I'll bring, okay. The book's called Holly Weird Science, and we just uh, finishing up the second draft. We actually didn't get too many notes from our, our editor, which was, was kind of satisfying. And again, it's about how science and scientists are portrayed in the entertainment industry, um, TV and film. We don't limit ourselves to either. <clears throat> we have a chapter, our first chapter is on accuracy, about how um, on some shows you want to be as scientifically accurate as possible, how some, some it doesn't matter, like you know superheroes or maybe the Roland Emmerich style um, disaster films where you know you're going to go off the rails at, at some point. Or on some shows where you actually act, actively try to degrade your science, like on Breaking Bad or um, CSI, where you don't want to teach people how to make math or build bombs. So we talk about, and, and so the accuracy issue is really complicated, and we, we go into great detail about that. And then we have a, a chapter on scientists, how scientists are portrayed, and it turns out that if you pick any group whether it be ethnicity, whether it be religious, whether it be um, gender, whether it be professional, nobody, with the possible exception of teachers, likes how they're portrayed in the entertainment industry. Nobody, across the board. And there are literally lobby groups in, in, in Hollywood that lobby the entertainment industry for how their group is portrayed. And um, so scientists who write about science, how scientists are portrayed generally lament that, oh, we're idiosyncratic nerds, we're villains, but if you look at people who do large media content analyses, that scientists have gotten a pretty good shake since about 1990. So we, we, we look at the people who have no dog in that fight and come to a very different conclusion than scientists who write on that do. So we talk about how scientists are portrayed, realist, you know, I, we think fairly realistically, as opposed to how scientists say they're portrayed, and it's a different outcome. Um, we think scientists are actually portrayed fairly well, um, better than you could hope for, better than... Mid- Maybe other things, and then we we just step through um, different types of, of, of science. We talk about mass, energy, you know, basic physics, and then we go off into some spacey topics like the universe and planets, and and we 
we talk about the science and we use things that are generally good examples. We're not we're not against lambasting things that are that that are egregious in, in some respect, but but generally we try to stay a lot more positive than other books. We don't say this is wrong, this is wrong. Hollywood totally screwed this up. And we, in fact, we interview a lot of people in the entertainment industry to say why they've done certain things. We have some great interviews with people like um, Zach Stentz and Ashley Miller, who write as a team. Um, we actually have twenty hours of interviews um, for this book. And right now, um, our publisher is processing the, the contract for a second one, so we're going to get at least one sequel. We're hoping for two, and because we got a lot more to say, and we've actually kind of already said it. We totally overwrote book one. We, we kind of have the second book already halfway done. <laughs> so so, um, so it's, it's, it's an examination of how Hollywood has portrayed science, and generally in a positive light, um, and, and generally coming to some different conclusions, and, and bringing some things to light that people hadn't, I think, seen before. As far as the brain goes, the brain, we, we allude to the 10% myth in book number one. Um, we poke fun at it in several uh, opportunities, but realistically, that's probably book three. Um, book one is basic physics and spacey type stuff. Book two is going to be more cybernetics um, and a few more space topics probably, but um, more cybernetics um, and... Um, and the like, and, and and life. We have a chapter that's actually already written. We just we just we just can't fit it in book one. It's about um, epidemiology, um, viruses, you know, the spread of disease and the spread of zombieism, which is essentially the same thing. How you know how rapidly would zombies you know propagate in in, in if you looked at an epidemiology curve, and realistically, how zombies wouldn't stand a chance because bacteria and predators and and, and scavengers would paste them. <laughs> so. That's that's but that's that's book two. That's what we're. Is there a date for book one? You know, I, I'm sure there's a date with our publisher. I think I just don't know what that is. I mean, I'm sure they have a date they'd like us to hit. And so we, like I said, we we didn't get that many notes on on the first revision. Um, like you might expect, five percent of the notes took ninety percent of the time to to address because I meant like oh, I got to watch this movie and 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 some some of them were really good suggestions too. I mean, there's a I watched the movie Adam with with um, Hugh Dancy. Which was a lot of fun, and I'm a big fan of Hannibal, so I got a chance to see Hugh dancing something else. But um, that was suggested. We we do a, a section on on Aspergers, and how I, the, the section is as Aspergers the new lab coat. It used to be if you show somebody a lab coat, oh, they're a scientist, and they have the authority and the the um, credibility to spew the exposition they're going to spew later. Well, now you show somebody with with Aspergers and, and with a few quirks, and the, the audience generally assumes that they're a savant. And they're going to be quirky, and that's that's kind of an automatic assumption these days. So that's why we say as Asperger's the new lab coat. Instead of putting a lab coat, we show them as, as an Aspie, and people make that assumption. And that may or may not be a good assumption. And we talk about that. So we, we talk about Aspie characters. I'm looking at you, Sheldon Cooper, and um, um, is, is one of the sections. So again, so is that the title of the chapter? It, the, the, it's a sub. It's a subsection. It's called "Is Asperger's the New Lab Coat?" Is but it? I'm looking at you, Sheldon Cooper. No, I, I don't. I don't title. know if I, if I said that, but um, but we we kind of we, we you know the science is all cutting edge science we talk about, but we do you know we do totally embrace. We're, we're both major league nerds. And um, we embrace that. In fact, the accuracy chapter is called the path to nirvana, where we define nirvana, your, 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 your satisfaction at being able to watch a science fiction film and not be pulled out of the drama by the oh, please moment. Indeed.
All right, so so that's 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 the the overview of the book. Um, actually, I'm really excited about it. I'm really proud of, it. and and I can't wait to people read all the nerdy goodness we've we've crammed in. I mean, it's, it's accurate science. It's it would be a good supplemental text for an introductory science class, or you know, but at the same time, it's like we did not shy away from embracing our nerdy side and, and, and all the references and all the examples you know, ranging from Spider-Man as an as examination of potential versus kinetic energy to um, to defiance, talking about the world building of defiance in our, our chapter, our last chapter is called Braver Newer Worlds and talking about how you're creating a world. We talk about use defiance as a touchstone because of all the effort that's gone into building that world. So, so it's a lot of fun. And when when can we expect to see this? I think it'll be out before the end of the year. I mean, like I said the second second draft is rapidly converging on a on a solution. And who's your publisher? Springer. Springer, Springer. is actually uh, they're they're based in Germany. They're they're one of the largest publishers, if maybe the largest publisher of technical books on the planet. This is a bit of a departure for them. It's a new book series. It's called Science and Fiction. So there are equal amounts of science science based books that cross line of science fiction and science fi- hard science fiction that that you know. That are hard science fiction. And will there be an ebook version? Oh, absolutely, there'll be an ebook version. <laughs> I'm all about ebooks these days. And um, yeah, like I said, there's, 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 we're looking at a, a probable sequel and, and hopefully two. Terrific. Um, so, what's the title? Holly Weird Science. Um, I, so I'm really excited. I can't wait to get to this until people read this. Of course, people are going to lambast it, but that, you know, that's, you, you deal with that. What? I'm I'm thrilled because, like I said, you see, you know, we we got to the first chapter done, and our and our, our editor is just as nerdy as we are. Um, he writes science fiction as well, and, and and he's a professor at the University of Wyoming in astronomy. So so he gets us, and so his if anything, his suggestions just made it nerdier. He's like, oh, have you thought about this 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 movie or and it's like and and, and almost every time it's like, oh yes, it, it ends up being at least a footnote if not a, a a new paragraph or two. That's a perfect storm creative team then. It was good and 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 but then I actually I made the mistake of going back and rewatching Red Planet. I hadn't seen it since it like it came out, first came out and that's one of the ones I kind of I picked a task because Red Planet, as far as the scientists characters, yeah. Could you marginalize science more than in that film? You have two scientists on a mission about terraforming. We're told the best and brightest minds are on this mission, yet one, then, then like in the next sentence, we're told that one's a last-minute replacement. So that kind of argues immediately against them being the best and brightest. And then the one scientist, the main the mission scientist, chief scientist, has given up scientist in, in, in lieu of his, his, his spiritual quest much like Baltar, but Baltar, at least when called upon to be a scientist, always rose to the occasion no matter when in the series, even to the very end. And um, in this case, the scientist isn't a scientist anymore. He says, I've given up. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for God. And the other scientist, the, 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 the terraforming expert on a mission to terraform Mars, has one or two lines of science dialogue. Another time when he could have had science dialogue, he's passed out drunk. And he commits the first murder ever on Mars. Nice. So could you marginalize science more? I think not. So yeah, we, we kind of have an issue with I, I kind of have an issue with with Red Planet, and there's another one that that marginalized their their female science character. We'll bring that up in the second book. The 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 saint with Val Kilmer. Oh, um, you have this science character, and she's on the cutting edge of a breakthrough. Um, uh, uh, that was going to create free energy for the world. And what do we do? He, he, but he realizes that her the way to her heart is through poetry and science, and through poetry and art. So she's completely not a scientist from almost the word go. I, I, I'm not trying to top you here, but I don't think you can get better than Christmas Jones. 
Oh, well, we talk about her too. Denise Richards. Yeah, we, yeah. we you know, in fact, we, we talk about her in, in reference to Natalie Portman's character, how they took Natalie Portman's character from Thor. And, and that was Zach and Ashley, the people yeah. I said I, we interviewed. They, they wrote, co-wrote Thor. And they, you know, Marvel was completely down with making her an astrophysicist rather than a nurse, which is what she is in the in the comics. Yeah. And um, they thought that she's a better bridge between the world of Asgard and, and ours. Right, the nine realms. Of yeah, the and, and Natalie Portman um, actually has papers published, science papers published. She has two, two um, one first authored, one, you know, um, I don't know what, where she has in the author list, science papers in, in the scientific literature. And her dad's is a is a um, is a I think he's a, a microbiologist or he's a he's a biologist of some stripe. So she's no slouch. She's highly educated. She's very smart, and she's published. So and, and she is a great science character in Thor. All right. So anyway, on that note, great science characters. Thanks very much. Pleasure. I hope you enjoy your time at Convolution. So do I. And uh, thank you, audience. Well, I hope you enjoyed our special edition interview with Kevin Grazer. As always, we will remind you that if you enjoyed listening to the Fanboy Planet podcast, there are a number of ways for you to show your appreciation. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Repost announcements of our articles and podcasts. And if you want to help out with the actual running of our services, there's a PayPal button on every page of the Fanboy Planet website that you can use to drop a few dollars on us to help out with paying for web hosting. As always, I'm your moral compass, Rick Brett Snyder, reminding you to use, use your powers, powers only for good. Thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com. The power of brains compels you. Okay, I think we got this down. <laughs> <laughs> Close on the and then it, it comes really tight, and then they come racing through the lower altitude. So it's perfectly. If they shot down one of their own satellites, and it was in a mole orbit, that's perfectly reasonable. You could have, you could have destroyed satellites at everything from very low to very to, to almost almost um, geostationary orbit. In the in the in the time frame. Time frames are always exaggerated in TV and science fiction because. Like like CSI and stuff, because one might argue that your dramatic tension might dissipate somewhat during that realistically long wait while the lab sequences DNA. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. I've been trying to get this to come up in volume, and it's my headset was turned all the way down. I, I never use this one, so now I can readjust this, because it was sounding really crappy, and it shouldn't sound that way. Okay, we were... Um, we were bereft of an audience when I decided that I could just record this and we wouldn't waste our time. So um, we're recording it now. Oh. And so we're going to do like a real formal interview as if we had never been speaking before 
in uh, in this room. Well, that's okay because that's what you normally do in interviews anyway. They usually you do like a pre-interview interview so you know what you can exactly. talk about. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, what's what's your degree in again? I've forgotten. Uh, Which one? Okay, so you're, <laughs> what what? We'll we'll just make that. We'll we'll start that off. That okay. Again. So um, I, I'm recording this for uh, the Fanboy Planet podcast, which a little over, a little under four hours from now we'll be doing a recording in here live with a studio audience, hopefully. Um, but uh, today we're um, we're in. Uh, it's it's fine. It's not coming. It's not being picked up. Now. Um, pardon me. Where am I? Ta- where am, where's the mic? I'm speaking. You're speaking right oh. into that, and it's already set. It's okay. It's all Levels. Set. Okay, I'm, I'm pegging the meters. You want that? I mean, do you want that? I'm hitting the uh, red. It, red is peg. This right. is this is optimal. Isn't that not red? That's orange. Oh, this that's what, is red. Oh, I got it. Yes, you're, I see that now. Okay. Yeah. No, we're, so we're, I don't use my dramatic projection, not yeah. from the diaphragm. <laughs> Well, you can. <laughs> well, I can. And I'm not going to end up being... Um, you'll be popping. Uh, yeah. You'll be fragmenting. Right. Normally, I've got tons of mics and a uh, Skype setup and stuff on this. But this actually will work by itself. So, um, so is it Grazer or Grazer? Grazer. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, just like Frazier, only with a G. Okay. I don't know any Frasers. Crane? Well, just that one. I never read his name. <laughs> and... Uh, Thank you for coming this morning, audience. Uh, we're going to explore uh, Kevin's uh, life and work. I'm amazed how many people are here this morning. This is great. It's, uh, give yourselves a round of applause, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank uh, you. There you go. There you go. Very, very polite audience. Golf claps.